0: Hey guys, it's Nathan. This is episode 18 of The Nathan Seawood Show.
1: The Nathan Seawood Show. Personal conversations with powerful men.
0: Hey guys, how you doing? Welcome back to the show. Thanks for joining me every week and thank you for spreading the good word about the show. I appreciate you guys and I love that you do that. And it was great to meet a bunch of you in LA at Rich Lipman's coaching event. A lot of listeners to the show there that came up and said hello. So thank you so much for that. I was at uh, 4PC over the last week, which is the close-knit coaching group that I'm a part of, and it just reiterated again how amazing it is to be in such a supportive community of, of people that want to lift you up, hold you accountable, allow you to think big and talk about your mission and also uh, help you grow and push you and what an amazing opportunity it is to have all these incredible people supporting me so loved my time with 4PC and a big week as well for me I handed in my resignation at my uh, airline this week so I will no longer be flying full time as of three months from now so that was uh, the culmination of a lot of conversations a lot of deep thinking and processing and i feel so so excited about the possibilities for my life now that i've uh, taken that big step it wasn't an easy step i don't want to sit here and say that it was just a some kind of natural conclusion and that it was easy it's taken a lot of thinking and a lot of assessment to get to this point um and i realized it's it's not just one thing it's not just okay this job no longer suits me and this new career does it's a whole load of different things. It's what are your parents going to say? What are you going to do about uh, money? Where are you going to live? Uh, What about all this time and energy you've invested in this career? For pilots, it's about what about the command that's coming up and the opportunities there? And also, yeah, just just a whole load of different factors, a whole load of different factors. So it's not one big thing. So it was a 50-50 call for me, but at the end of the day, I know that my passion and giving my gift and spreading my message out to the world is the most important thing for me. And unfortunately, I just didn't feel like flying was where I was most suited to do that. So I'm excited to create a new life where first of all health and relationship and family is at the core. Flying is a, a wonderful career but it's it's tough on your health especially the, the kind of night flying that I do and it's also hard to be away from your partner and your family a lot, of, a lot of the time. So I'm excited to create a new life with those things at the center and just really focus on giving my gift, growing my business, uh, helping more people achieve fulfillment and Growth and feel supported, and also supporting my big mission of ending male suicide in New Zealand. So, watch out for more things about that. But this is the first step of many towards achieving those goals. So, I'm really, really excited. And it's been a great career. So, reflecting back, it's given me all of my best friends. It's given me non-stop experiences traveling the world. You know, having really fun experiences flying the airplane as well. And I'm just so, so grateful for the career. And, yeah, I will uh, leave this career with incredibly fond, fond memories and feel very grateful that I've got to do it. This week on the show, we have a wonderful man by the name of Graham Barnes. Graham works for a charity called Shine in New Zealand. I'm a huge supporter of Shine. You can go to their website, 2shine, the number 2, 2shine.org.nz at any time to read about them. And Shine is really trying to combat the effects of domestic violence in New Zealand. Uh, We have very high suicide rates, but we also have uh, very, well, I guess you'd call them sad, depressing uh, domestic violence statistics out of New Zealand as well. And Graham has been right up at ground zero with that kind of stuff for uh, a long, long time, his whole career. So I was excited to dive in and hear all about Graham's life growing up in New Zealand, but also to ask some of the tougher questions and the more taboo topics around domestic violence. If you are sensitive to uh, the issues around domestic violence, uh, please use discretion when you're listening to the episode as we do talk about some very sensitive topics. Uh, But topics nonetheless I think are important to discuss and to understand and for all of us to understand uh, more about and how we can personally uh, try and reduce the effects of in New Zealand. So enjoy this very, very personal conversation with the powerful...
1: All
0: right. Well, yeah. Let's just go back to where we were talking before. So, just take me through your upbringing. So, you were brought up north of Wellington in New Zealand.
1: Yeah, in Masterton.
0: Ah, in Masterton. Oh, that's funny. I just yeah. um, I just met a guy. I'm a pilot, right? And uh, there's a new guy just started who I um he came on a familiarization flight with us yesterday. He was from Masterton. I was like, this is amazing from Masterton and meeting (laughs) in Tokyo. It was pretty exciting. So um, it must be, Masterton must be, um, must be in my, in my numbers this week. So um, yeah, yeah, tell us what it was like growing up in Masterton. What, what defined growing up in Masterton and what were some of the um, interesting things that defined
1: your upbringing? Well, you know, Masterton as it is now, uh, you know, I go back there quite a bit because I have a sentimental view of it. Um, which is a luxury you have with time, you can sort of go back and think, oh, and whereas actually when I was a kid, I really didn't like it. I couldn't wait to get the hell out of there <laughs> because for me at that time in the 60s and 70s, I found it really parochial, narrow-minded and kind of a closed-off little town. But, you know, what was nice about it was that it was – it was sort of small enough to be easy to live in cheap and sort of close to Wellington. You could jump on the train and in like 90 minutes you'd be in the capital city and life was pretty simple and straightforward. And that really suited my mum and dad. So I had one brother. And so we lived like on the edge of town. We'd go out into the country and cut up firewood for the winter. And I, even though we lived in town, we lived a pretty rural life in some ways because we knew lots of people and we had relations who lived on the farm. So in lots of ways, we had a semi-rural life, which really suited my dad, and he, he just wanted to get away from people. Now, I was kind of different in that respect. I wanted to be around people. I wanted to go to Wellington. I wanted – um the buzz of the city. So I was mostly bored by Masterton. And because I was into reading and books and, I don't know, learning about the world, I found it kind of stifling. And no one in my family was much interested in those things. So, you know, it was a bit of a staff. That's how it felt to me. Um, yeah. It wasn't till I when I got to high school – There was other people who thought like me and there were some teachers who I thought were really stimulating thinking people. So I enjoyed that. I went to Greytown for high school and I was really grateful to meet like-minded people. And I was starting to think more politically. I can remember reading books like The Pyramid Climbers and Black Like Me. So I was already thinking about Politics and stuff like that by the time I was 16, 17. But and
0: what did your parents like do? Like, how did they end up in Masterton?
1: Well, their parents had come but on both sides of my family. Both of my grandparents had come from England as um, uh, looking for a new life from, from England. You know, they were um, small business owners, so they were kind of like middle class reasonably not wealthy but like middle class small business owners and they'd come there to um, get away from a rather cramped and busy life in the UK so both of my parents were born in Masterton they loved Masterton they didn't want to go anywhere else to live Um, they were very happy there it was only me who was wanting to get the (laughs) hell out of there
0: like you said. So you're more into the academic, academic stuff. And was it what was the focus of Masterton? It was uh, more rural stuff, oh, farming, sport. Yeah,
1: exactly. It was like a rural service town. And so if you were into that, if you liked playing rugby, if you liked milking cows and going to town on Friday night, having a few beers, coming home, you know, going to bed and getting up and going to work the next day, it was a fine place to be. But, you know, for me, it it wasn't who I was. So I found it really stifling. And I think I was the only one in our family who felt that way. So it felt lonely. Um, I was really grateful to to leave. And I was the only one from our family who went to university. And my parents both knew I was going to university, but, you know, they – They knew I would, but, uh, I mean, neither of them were that interested in what I might do or whatever. They just wanted me to go, so off I went.
0: Was it just a a lack of understanding of academia?
1: I think so. I mean, they they were loving, kind people, um, and they wanted me to do well, but they also thought I was a bit over the top, you know, So in that respect – and they were right, you know. I mean, I think they found me a bit much, and um, I I think I was kind of a brat. So when I look back on it now, um, I feel a bit sorry for my parents having to put up with me. And also going back to Masterton now, I like it. You know, it's a way different town. It's really changed to what it was. It's much more um, – much more kind of diverse yeah. and interesting than it used to be. Mm.
0: And what were the things that you were into? Like, what, what was the the subject that like you talked about? Politics and, and getting into politics yeah. at a young age.
1: I was into English history, geography. I was into. Um, I didn't know the word existed then, but I was into sociology, studying how how things worked in society, power relationships, that kind of stuff. I was interested in that. I was just starting out on understanding how people's relationships worked between groups, and when I went to high school, um, you know, this whole difficulty that I had in high school, which put me out of the loop in terms of the main Male culture of of Greytown, Masterton, Wairarapa, which was the region, and New Zealand, which is rugby culture, you know, I felt really alienated by because I was six foot four when I was thirteen, so I was super tall, which I was a freak, and I, I mean, I didn't look unusual until people found out I was thirteen, like I could go to the bar and order beers when I was 14 and I was never no asked, <laughs> no, never asked. And you're meant to be 21, right? Mm. And I was never, ever asked my age from 15 up. And so I was always the one who could order beer for everyone else, except I didn't know what to say. I'd say, oh, can I have a beer, please? <laughs> and like, <laughs> you don't say that. <laughs> anyway, yeah, pretty much so, That makes
0: you the most valuable 15-year-old in the whole town, doesn't it?
1: I was valuable, but you know, still not very st- street smart, still kind of dumb. But I was enjoying lots of things about being a bit ahead of myself, but it didn't mean that I could play rugby or any team sport. So actually, I hated aspects of growing up there because everyone wanted me to play rugby, but no one would ever, ever give me the ball because once they saw, that I didn't know what to do with it and would probably fall over trying to go somewhere with it. It was hopeless. And it really wasn't until I was like 18 before I got any kind of eye-hand-feet coordination. And by that stage, I'd finished high school. So, you know, I'd already got a bad attitude about team sports. And that's pretty rare. And I must say that once I had children myself, and inexplicably, all my children were really good at sport. And so they cured me of that bad attitude to team sport because they, <laughs> I'd sit and watch them and think, like, oh, wow, they're having a great time. Okay, I can get with this. And yeah, so, that's a it, you gift. know, oh, it really is.
0: And just make it real for the, the, the people listening that are not from New Zealand. It's it's hard to explain. I'm interested in your opinion on this. You said the rugby culture or the you know this kind of sport driven culture of the country, I know it's obviously changed now, but what what was it back then? How did that feel in terms of uh, Masterton and
1: how did it look that, well, that that rugby culture well yeah, like you say it's changed I think it's changed a little bit, but I think it's it's very much around it's like socializing with other men and boys, is really based around being in a team. It's really based around um, hanging out with your mates and building a sense of identity through sport. And I think it's not much different in lots of other countries, except it's not based around rugby. But it's very macho. And it's a way of armoring young men. It's a way of getting boys to not feel pain. And I think there's some elements of it that are quite good, but there's also elements of it that actually create monsters because I think a lot of boys are actually quite sensitive and they really don't like it, but they'll do it to belong. And so a lot of kids go through hell with that, but it's a private hell because they're never going to admit that actually they don't like being hurt. And they don't like, um, it's like the initiation that you go through. It's like a form of social and physical initiation of getting pummeled in scrums and in just the ways that kids attack each other on the sports field. And I wanted no part of that. And because I was no good at sport, I was automatically spat out of it. But I so paid the social cost. You didn't actually cost. have to
0: reject it. You didn't have to say that you didn't like no. it. You
1: just never got a chance to go into it. That's right. They were never going to uh, throw the ball to me. But, you know, I didn't care. I didn't want the damn ball. And um, by that stage, I already had decided that I hated it. But, you know, that cost me socially and it it made me a freak. In what and, way? And, well, what's the matter with you? you're not playing rugby and I, you know, you can explain, well, I'm just, you know, I've grown so fast that I'm not coordinated. You know, you can give like a, a reason, but none of that matters. You're just a freak if you don't play rugby, what's the matter with you? And none of that um, rational response makes up for it. It just, it's just a horrible aspect of New Zealand culture That was much stronger then, but it's still there still, which says you have to join in with these kind of male socialization rituals. And if you don't, you know, then what that usually means either you're gay, you're weak, there's something wrong with you. And and if you wear those labels, you know, you're going to get the shit beaten out of you somewhere along the line. Now, I didn't get beaten up, but I, it got pretty close. And the only way I was able to get out of being beaten up was I had a big mouth. And so I could talk shit to people and get out of um, being uh, caught in the crossfire, I guess. So I was mm. fortunate
0: I want to come back to some of the points you touched on, uh, so we'll, we'll do that a bit later on. But take us through the next phase. So you move down to Wellington and you go to university in Wellington?
1: You know, I should have fought to go to Wellington because it was a more attractive place for me. But I ended up going to Palmerston North, which is just a bigger version of Masterton. But, but you know, it's, a, it's actually quite a bit better than Masterton. But I went... What was good about it was it was university, and so it was stimulating intellectually. And so I had a good time at university, but I, I got into uh, socialising and drinking there, which was a lot of fun. But um, I didn't really study as well as I could have. So I, I stayed two years at university there and didn't get great grades because I don't think I really focused in the way that I should have, because I was uh, going to bars, listening to um, music, and I was doing a bit of study, but really I was spending my weekends in Wellington with my friends, um, unknown to my parents. (laughs) So... You know it was a bit of a it was a bit of a stupid time in my life. I really needed someone to sit me down and say, "What the hell are you doing?" because I wasn't really ready to study. I really needed to do something else with my life, but i didn't know it. I was a bit lost through that time
0: so where and, does it lead to Where, where did you go Were you, did you ever explore politics or
1: no, I didn't. But I was I was a bit involved in some um, political things, and I went. To, I enjoyed. I went to a few clubs down in Wellington that were fun. Like, I was, you know I socialized a lot in Wellington on my weekends because I went down there. It was just down the road. And um, so I went to uh, drag nightclubs that were pretty amazing in Wellington at that time. It was around the time of Carmen. If people know who that was, that was kind of like a drag queen, a Maori indigenous drag queen in Wellington who created sort of a subculture of drag clubs in Wellington that I really enjoyed going to. So I had a good social time down there, but uh, you know it was kind of in the closet really. So it wasn't probably wasn't that good for me really, but it was it was socially fun. It was really enjoyable, and then so I only did two years study, and then I ended up um, moving up uh, to a city up north, Tauranga, and I ended up getting in a relationship with a with a woman. Um, who ended up, uh, we ended up getting married. And she, um, her name was Sylvie, and she was really coming out of a period of illness, and I helped her get back on her feet. And we got married, and we had three children pretty much straight away.
0: And how old were you when you got married?
1: Uh, 22. Wow. So quite young. Very young. I mean, I'm doing a short version of this because in between all this, I was riding motorcycles and um, I guess getting a, a buzz from speed and stuff. So I was pretty um, pretty fortunate that I stayed alive through this whole time because I rode motorbikes really fast and I, raced, I club raced a little bit. Uh, I wasn't a good racer. I wasn't a – a real fast ride, I mean I wasn't a competitive rider, but I would have loved to have raced motorcycles. Um, I was totally into motorbikes for quite a while there and um, and was that the I sign of something that. else
0: it was like what well, what was the the buzz that you were getting from motorbikes?
1: Well, it was power, I think it was mostly power it was it was kind of individualism power and was like an alternative identity. I wanted to be like an intellectual biker. It was a it was a weird thing. And I'm glad I got over it, but it took me a few years to get over that. I I was really into Italian motorcycles. And so um it wasn't until um when around the time that I got married I'd had a serious motorcycle accident, really messed up one of my legs. And that's what helped me get over motorcycles and think, okay, time to give that a rest. <laughs> this has got an
0: expiration date on it.
1: <laughs> it sure does. Because actually, it made me very grateful that, that I hadn't been killed. Because I was riding big Italian motorcycles that go very fast. And I mean, bikes go faster now. But they, I was riding bikes that do 130, 140 mile an hour. And I would do that, you know, just down down the road. And I loved it. It was it was amazing. And um the fact that I didn't pile into a car at that speed, I'm very grateful for. So I managed to live through that because you know, I think I was very irresponsible. And um to to think about the number of people who ride motorcycles now and ride really fast. Um, sometimes in the US, I'd see them riding that speed with no helmets on. I just think, "You crazy bastards!" <laughs> yeah. It's it's just like it's like a death wish. But anyway, I don't have that death wish anymore.
0: So, so you get married at 22 and have three kids. And where are you yes. at now? What 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 work are you doing? And what's defining well, this point?
1: At that time, I'm doing like, by that stage, I've trained to be a school teacher. And so it's ironic. I've been so critical of the school systems. But what I wanted to do was actually, I wanted to work in alternative education. I was really interested in schools and trying to make schools better because I was very fired up about injustice when I was in high school and I had this big dream of helping create alternative schools and so I thought, okay, what I need to do is get experience in a regular school, get my qualification and some experience and then help create schools that work better for kids who don't fit in regular schools. Because this whole thing about being an outsider within the school system was a real big deal for me. I felt bad for kids who don't fit in schools because I felt like I was one of them. I hated being like the rugby outsider, and I wanted to create a school that wasn't going to create such a um, just you're either with us or outside us. Um, feeling for a lot of kids, and I think schools still do that. And so that I'm was my. Guessing this my was a pretty plan. the
0: stuff you were into. That was probably pretty radical in the seventies and eighties.
1: It was, but you know, if you look if you look closely, there were quite a few people internationally who were interested in that. As Neil in in the UK had been doing it for a number of years, and and there were a number of people in the US as well. Particularly up around the Boston area, who were creating alternative schools that were child centered and um, were uh, teaching kids like the unschooling movement that's around now and that create environments where children can learn without a really structured, rigid curriculum. And children come out of those schools with an amazing ability to learn and it works great. And I think, I'm thinking that. I don't know if it's one of your podcasts, but maybe. Yeah, I remember Rich
0: Livin talking about the unschooling movement.
1: Exactly. And and so uh, when I heard that, and there's others too who have um, recognized that if you provide a rich learning environment, children can be um, amazingly good at doing project-based learning. And so that was the kind of thing that I was wanting to do. So, I was quite motivated by that stage to do that kind of work, and it was all around uh justice for people who don't fit into the system so it was it was a good time for me beautiful, yeah there's um, just so
0: much talent out there, you know there's so many I guess we are better at it now, recognizing that there's just so many different types of people, and just because somebody doesn't look and sound the way you do doesn't mean that they don't have a huge amount to offer and a huge amount to give and trying to find ways to, I guess, in a class of 30 people, to honour each child's individual gifts, that becomes the challenge.
1: That's right. But if you look closely at most schools, um, you'll find there's special ed classes. Now, not all special ed classes are like this, but a lot of the special ed teachers are actually really creative because what what they've got going for them is that they've thrown the rigid curriculum out the window and they're working with the kids who don't fit in the regular classrooms. And because they've been able to throw that rigid curriculum out, they can run child-centered work. And so they've also got a smaller class. They can create child-centered learning. And because everyone's given up trying to teach those kids the rigid curriculum and everyone else is saying, oh, you can't do anything with those kids, they can do amazing things with those kids. And people will leave them alone because they're just glad they haven't got those kids in their class. And actually, if you go and look at what they're doing, some of those, I'm not saying all of them, some of them aren't great at all, but some of those teachers have found a niche where they can do some very creative work. So I wasn't sure whether I was going to get to find that niche in the mainstream schools or whether we would need to create something um, new and different. So where so did it go was, from
0: there? Where were you, you were working in Tauranga, was it?
1: Yes, yes, that's where I was. Well, it went a different way, but it was still related to that. What happened was um, after a period of time, my marriage started falling apart, and that's a whole story in itself. Now, that was very painful for me because we had uh, <laughs> my wife and I, who was five years older than me, um, and – you know, now, when I think about it now, I'm 60 now, and I think a five-year age difference, that's, that ain't shit. You know, five <laughs> years, who cares? But five years back then, it you seemed like quite a lot. Huge. Exactly. Yeah, it, it's a much bigger difference. And I think she felt like I was kind of immature. And I think looking back, yeah, I was. But also um, – my children's mum, she had a major struggle with mental illness, and her mental illness was it was manageable up to a point she she struggled with bipolar and had done for many years but um, as a part of that, it put a lot of stress on our relationship because we were trying to raise three children under three. Um, we had twin sons and an older daughter. And it was very difficult for us to manage that. Plus, you'd be seriously depressed or seriously manic. And um, when you're dealing with both those things like three children, um, very young, quite needy, and, and serious mental illness, something had to go. And neither of us were that good, I don't think, at working on our relationship. So to cut a long story short, we ended up doing couples counseling, trying to work out whether we should stay together. Well, she'd already decided, no, we're not. And I was thinking, yes, we could do it. We could do it. Well, we couldn't do it. Um, and she was right, I, I think. She, she could see that it wasn't going to work. And part of that was because um, she decided that she was a lesbian and not only that but a lesbian separatist. And so, in the process of what us does that mean for those that up, don't
0: know?
1: A lesbian separatist meant that she, at that stage, and remember, this is the eighties. So, politically, there was quite a movement among the fe- in the feminist, uh, the broader feminist movement, of women who wanted to live basically where they could get away from men. They were sick of men, and they really wanted to live within community of women and they right. it's not like they it's not i mean they knew they still had to go to the supermarket and oh look there's a guy i mean it's not like they were thinking they could live completely away from men but really they wanted to be by women for women together with women and not really have men around in their inner group of of circles and I understood that. I read a lot about feminism. I understood because their critique of society was feminist. And, and so I was learning, um, I had to learn fast, uh, about what feminist thought was about. And I kind of agreed with it. But it was still, I still felt pretty defensive because, you know, external genitals and everything. I mean, when you're the father of your children and two of your children are male, you can get defensive because you think, oh, my God. So it's like there's no place for me or at my sons in this picture, um, which is how it felt at times. But it isn't actually what she thought. Um, it was my defensive reaction initially. And so – that so, she just find- wanted the
0: time, she just wanted to be among other women, but still, yes, be a mother and yes. still,
1: yes, meet she all did. of her responsibilities, sh- yes. And so, um, this was a, a long, drawn out process. But the way we dealt with it, I had formed at her encouragement, I had formed um, an attachment to a men's group, which some other men who I'd got to know had formed. And I was a part, actually a part of the group, part of the people that formed that group, a social and political action group of men in Tauranga that was about taking social action on sexism and racism. So we were a political action group. And, and, and uh, my partner had was also part of a women's group and so through that those two groups, we ended up using her women's group and my men's group to work out quite a few of the details of how our separation would work. Now, it's not often that that happens, that mm. you have a men's group and a women's group to work out how a divorce is going to happen. But that's kind of how we did it. And it sort of worked.
0: Like a community um, this- divorce. <laughs>
1: Yes. And when I think about it now, I think, wow, we did it. And it was because we really listened to each other. And because there was a lot of goodwill, like those women um, cared about our men's group, they appreciated our work. and, And the men in our men's group were open minded. And we really thought through what they were saying. And we weren't apologizing for being men. We were Proud of being men, but we weren't buying sexism. We weren't prepared to continue to be pricks. We were happy to be men, but we were not going to be sexist men who thought that men were superior to women. And because of that, we were able to work it out. And so together, we formed this men's group. Now, the other thing, the other thing. That was interesting. Was we also had couples counselling where uh, Sylvie went to had a woman's counsellor, a woman counsellor, and I had a man for a man's for a counsellor, and then we'd do couples together. And through that process, plus our groups, I really learnt a lot about sexism and my sexism. I was shocked at how through that process of couples counselling, that some of the experiences we'd had together as a couple, Sylvia and myself, we would work back through some of our awkward situations that we'd had together, and her experience of those situations was so different to mine, it made me understand sexism so much deeper. And I really appreciated that. We had skilled counsellors. They helped us both work through that stuff. And it really gave me an understanding of sexism at a deeply personal level. And I think um, that really got me started in my area of work, which is stopping violence against women. I realized, shit, I didn't even realize that she was so hurt and upset by that thing I said to her, by those things I did to her that I had no idea were hurting her. And I'm not someone who hits women. I'm not someone who looks at women and say, hey, bitch. You know, I'm just not that kind of person. I was a regular, middle-class, intellectual, nice guy, and yet I was still sexist in the way that I saw and did things. Was and
0: underlying that, everything.
1: Yes, and it bowled me over. I just would not have believed that before I went through that. And it made me realize, oh, my gosh, I've got some work to do here for myself, but also I've got some work to do with other men who didn't realize this themselves. And all of a sudden I become a born-again anti-sexism warrior, which (laughs) is pretty irritating for other men. (laughs) But important because a lot of those men were not understanding why their partners were so mad at them. And they thought, oh, this fe- feminism is breaking up our family. And I felt like saying, no, it's not. If you can look at yourself, you'll realize this could help your family. But you've got to be prepared to be vulnerable. And and it's hard for men to be vulnerable because they mistake Vulnerability for weakness. And weakness and vulnerability, they're close together on the scale, but they're not the same thing. Weakness is not vulnerability, but we mistake them for those. I think vulnerability
0: is so difficult for men to do, you know, to open up and share. It's so uh, one of the hardest things a man can do. So I find it ironic that it gets called weak when it's probably the hardest, strongest option.
1: Exactly, Nathan, you've actually you really nailed it. And you know I take it back to in New Zealand, we've got our own version of it and it's in the rugby ruck for a lot of the men. We armor up with, with all of our socialization that we have we have learned to block out pain. we've learned to block out hurt and in doing that that helps us manage those situations it also blocks out all these other things that we need to feel. We need to feel it sometimes. And the trouble is when you block out the pain of some things that you need to block out, you also block out some other things that you need to let in. And so you've got to actually go through an unlearning process to to be able to be a fit and useful male partner to women. And a lot of men don't understand that, and and they they think they don't have to do that work. But actually, there is some work to be done there, and some men will do it. And some men understand that, and others never understand it. And I don't think women should date them. They should have a big sign on their head, undateable, because they're never going to learn it. But how do you know which is which? Well, you don't, because some men do learn it. Some learn it when they're 60. Some learn it when they're 50. Some never learn it. You know. And what is it just, that they
0: learn? What is it that the process that you see? Obviously, for you, it came through marriage counselling and men's work and, and having that support yeah. around you. The kind of work you're talking about, what is it? Take us through it.
1: Well... Um, I think it varies so much by the individual. You know, for me, it was very humbling to be around other men going through the process of learning that. Seeing a grown man crying as he understands that what his partner has been telling him is what he needs to learn and that she's not saying anything bad to him. She's just telling him what she's feeling and that she just wants him to hear that, and that he doesn't have to fix it. He just has to hear what she's experiencing, and no, she doesn't want him to fix it. And no, stop, just listen to me, and he can't stop because he wants to fix it, and then he's crying because she won't let him fix it, and then for him to stop that and then just to listen and to see him listen and then for him to understand, okay, I get it. I understand that. Now, that's a super simple little thing. But to see someone understand, I just have to be with you and understand what you're going through and just be alongside you. There's that wonderful video. I don't know if you've seen Brene Brown's little video on empathy versus sympathy. Mm. Um it's a pretty cool little thing. It's only about three minutes. It's up on YouTube. And um, I think that empathy is a subtle skill. It's not even a skill. It's an it's a inner knowledge. And not many men are very good at it. But little boys will have it if it hasn't been trained out of them. Um, we have it naturally naturally. But our socialization trains it out of us. And um, we, can, we can bring it back if we work with each other. So I like doing that work with other men because when you see men reclaiming, it's almost like reclaiming that openness, that vulnerability, is that ability to be able to hear and listen to, to someone else's experience without rushing in to judge it or to talk about it or to do anything with it until you really just hear it and know it and be with it. And that sounds really deceptively simple, but that's like step one. And then there's a bunch of that's steps really that follow you from that.
0: Yeah, that's really beautiful. Just, yeah, I th- as men, that's such a, beautiful observation we want to fix everything it's a bit of a cliche yes. as well in a relationship um yeah, yeah, we don't want to just talk they don't want anything <laughs> fixed and men just want to fix the problem and make it go away so learning I, that art of empathy just to be able to hear and really just yes. be i guess compassion is the word isn't it to have compassion that, and just that, that, be present and and hear what life is like for somebody else learning yes. that skill again
1: yes and, and I've heard we, people we describe
0: te- it as, uh, you know, having a wall, feeling this wall that stops them feeling that empathy or compassion. That's the kind of social yeah. conditioning you're talking about, right?
1: It really is. But, you know, I'm a bit reluctant to make it a general statement because one thing I've found is that um, men aren't still dis- – although we all get socialized that way a bit, um, each person has their own version of it. So – I'm a bit reluctant to say it's like that for all men because some men are very insightful on this stuff. And part of why I love running stopping violence programs is when you're in a group with, say, 10 or 15 men and you work with it in an action method um, situation, like, which is like a role play, I guess, and you get men working on it, some of the other men in the group are so insightful They help each other with it. And I don't need to say I might be the facilitator, a co-facilitator. They can help each other. And yet the person doing the helping, he can see it in someone else and he can help the other guy in a very subtle, nuanced way. But when it comes to his particular situation, he can't see it. He can't see it. He needs the other guys to help him but he can see it with someone else. And so we draw on that shared knowledge in the group. And it's such a gift to have all the men helping each other and it brings them closer together. Because the other thing is that male socialization does is it divides us from each other and it makes us think we're all separate. Whereas actually we can help each other and do it together and that's a big lesson it's a wonderful thing. We're much more the same reg- than
0: we are different.
1: Yes. And sitting in that room, there's rich guys, poor guys, people of different cultures, people who are kind of struggling a bit with some of the language, others who are super articulate, and others who are grunt can be quite articulate. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's kind of cool because they really help each other. And then... The the skill of the facilitators sometimes is to just shut up because, you know, we want to fix it or over-facilitate it sometimes because actually they can do it with each other as long as we watch that process and make sure it's on track.
0: It's beautiful. Like, I I run a couple of men's groups as well, and you're you're helping me to understand what you're saying because... A lot of times when I mention a men's group to someone, I go, oh, I'd prefer to do one-on-one work. I, You know, I don't like of the idea course. of being in a group. Um, no. But trying to articulate, well, being around other men is so valuable. We can achieve a lot more in a group really? than we can one-on-one. It's just a different atmosphere. And that exact thing that you said, how much you'll get from just staying silent and watching – someone else get yes. coached or someone else talk about their experience, it'll bring up so many different things for you. You'll learn a lot from that. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, like I say, can, just, you, just sitting you back. You can
1: tell them that. You can tell them that. But until they've experienced it, that know that because mm. that's the problem is um, I think men have to actually be in the group to to know that. So well, it's there's this bit, experience for me too fun.
0: of – it is. There's an experience for me too of – I I think we all have an innate fear of opening up and being judged, or and whether yes. that comes from like for me, I remember you know, getting um, bullied a little bit at high school, um, not yes. physically but verbally. You know, so I was, I, I walked yes. around for so much of the time just scared of saying the wrong thing or scared of saying something yes. that was going to get me picked on, right? And so, yes. men walking into a group when you say, "Hey, you know, tell us a little bit about why you cheated or something. Why did you cheat on your wife?" And that, that initial fear of, oh, I don't want everybody to pile onto me. But then once they see, actually, you're in a safe environment with other men, that they're, they're going to do the opposite. They're going to listen to you and hear you, and they're going to sympathize, empathize, be compassionate, and then probably share a similar story to what you've just shared. It's like, wow, that's a whole new world opens up for you. Where you have men that, that support cool? you. Yeah. Oh, it's incredible.
1: And And most people, especially women... Cannot believe that that could happen because their usual experience of men is they don't go anywhere near that shit. And yet, when you facilitate the learning environment correctly um, and and where the tone is right, it's quite surprising how how that can work. So, um, I I guess with good
0: reason that men don't go there, though, right? With good reason that they don't want to talk about it. They a deep core belief. That's probably well founded. That yes, you're going to get hurt. No,
1: exactly, mm. because male culture is often so toxic and aggressive and competitive, and you can't have that if you're going to make any progress with this stuff. So there's a big responsibility on the facilitators to make sure that environment stays, um, you know, compassionate and kind and open, and then you can still challenge. You can still Make it challenging but not threatening, and so keeping it challenging but making sure it's not threatening—that's quite a skill to do that. So you you have a constant responsibility as the facilitator to keep that balance. Mm. Yeah. I love that work. Yeah, oh, it's yeah, the I love greatest it.
0: work. So let's talk about uh, domestic violence specifically. You brought that up. You work with a wonderful organisation in New Zealand called Shine. That helps yeah. uh, helps in all phases of uh, eradicating domestic violence from New Zealand. So, yeah. tell me, in New Zealand, we have we constantly hear about uh, domestic violence cases, whether it's a, a small baby or a child that's been abused or even killed, and there's horrible statistics that Shine puts out that says a child is killed in New Zealand every six weeks. Is that right, Graham? Or it's five or six weeks by a, by yeah. a partner or by, by a family member rather. Uh, which is horrendous. Why do we struggle I, so much with domestic violence?
1: It's it's just it's it's so bad here, and yet in some ways, you know, this is such a great country for, in so many ways, and yet that level of violence is so high, and the the brutality of the violence with the domestic violence I'm talking about is so high. Um, and, and I really think it comes down, and this is just theory because there's no research that you can show this because we're dealing with a complex social problem. And so there's not going to be a simple glib answer as to why it's so bad here. But I, I really believe that there's a certain kind of pioneer-type um, male-based culture in this country that brings out some of the worst in in the way that we treat women. But it's not just women. It's the way we treat men. It's the way we treat children. It's an element of domestic violence and child abuse and neglect that just comes out in this country worse than most other OECD countries. Like out of 25 and what's that? Organisation for Economic Something in Cooperation and Development. That's what OECD stands for. And so there's 25 countries in that group. Of those 25 countries, New Zealand is at number 23. So all there's, there's, there's 22 countries that do better than us. And the ones that do worse than us are the United States and Mexico in terms of child abuse and neglect and domestic violence. And so we do pretty badly. And the United States does it badly, partly because of um, guns. Um, And we don't have a, a, a big gun problem in New Zealand. We have Pretty good gun laws, and people generally are not getting shot up like they are in the United States. So, but what's happening is there's a huge level of violence in terms of just the severity and the and the prevalence that is way beyond um, other countries like the United States and Canada, that uh, and the UK so that um, it's hard to grasp just how much more serious the level of violence is here than it is in the other comparable countries. Even, say, if you look at Ireland, which has no real claim on being super peaceful, <laughs> and hmm. yet um, our level of violence is much higher than Ireland. And um, it's, it's hard to figure, but I think that there's something to do with that, with that. It's and I'm going to say Barry Crump. Um, you know, I don't know if you've I assume you're familiar with that yeah. name, Barry Crump. He's a New Zealand author, and he wrote some good books, and he's, you know, he's not all bad, like the same as the guys that we work with who've been very violent to their partners and families. They're not all bad, but, I mean, he – he had was seriously violent to, um, I think, all of his parents, and he had several, and I knew one of them, and I knew firsthand how violent he was to her. So he's like a mythic character of the Kiwi guy, and and I'm not saying it's all about Barry Crumb, but he kind of has this um, she'll be right type um attitude of the of the Kiwi guy and all wrapped up in that mythology is this guy who gets his own way because I think that at the bottom of it, this violence is intentional behavior designed to control someone. And if you look at all the tools that have come out of the women's movement, the the intention behind this behavior is to control someone. And it's it's very dangerous, and it's mirrored also in what happens with lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer violence. The pattern is still the same. It actually follows the same patterns, which is kind of sad because the same behaviour, except also very high, with LGBTQ partners, it's, it's, it's controlling behaviour where one partner Sets up a pattern of abuse and control of the other, and the other partner's world is shrunk right down, really small, and and they are scared to do things because the other partner is is controlling their every move and everything about their world, and that's what New Zealand has got this amazing high high number of people. Doing
0: it at a very serious level, and is it there's sort of two things that come to my mind where it's it's an anger issue, where we've got uh, what you've touched on before with just uh, partially the rugby culture. I don't want to keep beating up on rugby because it's not uh, a sport no. can't a sport can't result in this kind of thing, but it just we just use no, that no. as the, the the euphemism. But um, yes. rugby rugby being. Um, that rugby culture kind of creating men that can't express their emotions and can't express their anger or express their um, um, upset in healthy ways. So it boils up and boils up until anger becomes the only option. And that's that's kind of one thing that comes up for me. And then the other thing is, is it behind the scenes somewhere, is this actually an acceptable thing? Is this something that's been... It, that, that some of the guys think, well, yeah, this is an acceptable way to deal with your partner and your children.
1: I think so. I think there's a sense of entitlement there, which says, "This is my wife. I own her. This is my girlfriend. You can't have her. She's mine. If I can't have her, no one else can have her." There's a sense of ownership that um, that this is my girlfriend. This is my wife. And so I'll do with her as I want, and if I can't have her, no one else can have her. Now, this is common internationally, that, that belief of ownership, and it's very scary um, because it's like that person who's being abused isn't anymore in control of their own life. They've become um, sort of like a, a piece of property. And and that's very concerning. And that's also what's happening with the children too, is that they're dehumanized into a thing. And it's it's um, we have to go into talking with men and not just men. We have to talk with everyone about people's right to claim their own world and to be their own person. It's a bit like. Um, when we were kids, we had to kiss the auntie and kiss the nanny, go and give her a kiss, you know, and, like, kisses were compulsory. And now we're saying, no, you don't have to. You, you only have to kiss someone if you want to. And these are changes that some people would say, oh, it's PC gone mad. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, and But actually, that's that's important. Because you can't, you can't, um, you can't. You shouldn't be able to force children to uh, go and kiss the nanny. I know it's good manners to do that, but but I don't think it's right to force that kind of thing. It's the thin end of the wedge. It is polite to do it, but I would never make my children do things like that. My my dad. He hit us as kids when we did naughty things and I swore that I would never use any corporal punishment with my children and I think my children were pretty well behaved and they were never ever, uh, I never ever whacked them or used any of those things that my dad or my mum used against me and I think that I feel very glad that I did that. Now, it didn't mean to say that it wasn't hard at times to get them to clean up their room <laughs> because they weren't scared of me, um, whereas I was scared of my dad, and the fact that I was scared of him, it did make me clean up my room. It did make me do my chores and jobs and stuff, but it also meant that I was busting to get away from him and I had no real closeness to him as a as a person. And my kids have much greater closeness to me and I'm very grateful for that. And so we would talk with men and say, What kind of relationship do you want with your children? If when you die, what do you want them to be able to say about you as they look down at your coffin? Do you want them to say Good job, the old bastard, it's gone. Or do you want them to say, I really love my dad and I really miss him and I feel very close to him and he was such a loving, kind, caring dad? What do you want them to say about you? Yes. And so we want them to think about that. And you know, almost all the men, they really want that, like you're saying. Um, And so. Our leverage really is to get them thinking about what kind of man do they really want to be, what kind of father. And so it's just talking about that, and in the end they have to choose that. Um, We can't force them to to be that kind of dad if they don't want to be. It's up to them to think about it. No one was saying that stuff 30, 40 years ago. I think it's a wonderful time to grow up now that people are talking about this. So it's, it's a wonderful been good thing for
0: that, uh, wonderful work that Shine does is yeah. that they, they're all over this issue. So they're yeah, out there are yeah. supporting people that are victims of domestic violence, helping them to take that away from that environment that they're yeah. in and yeah, put them into safe houses. And then on the other side, we were talking before, and where you. Can, you, you help out a lot as actually the men that are or women that are the perpetrators they help them as well to start
1: recovering yes mm. well I, I think that's important I don't think I don't think it works to just do one half of it I think we have a responsibility I mean either way those the people who are using the, the violence are still connected in some way to the children to their to the partners, and even if they break up with that person, they're going to have new relationships. They'll get into a relationship with someone else. Um, so we still have a responsibility to them um, if they've been using violence. So cool. let's let's work with that.
0: And I want you to uh, help me dispel some of the the myths about domestic violence. So if you can, uh, you know, just make a comment on this. So the assumption is that it's uh, straight men beating up women.
1: Well, right. And there's a lot of that. <laughs> Don't get sure. me wrong. So, but it's it's really not that. Um, I mean, that that is predominantly what we're working with. That's the visible face of domestic violence. But the, if you, there's difficulties in terms of measuring so, and I, I don't know how much you want me to go into this, but if you look at if you look at who's doing what to whom, with what effect, women are hitting men at about the same rate as men are hitting women. So the level of actual, if you're measuring um, the effect of the violence, when women hit men, it's quite often in retaliation for other violence and also, um, not many men are living in fear from women hitting them. A lot of men I mean not many people like being hit, and it's it's not good that women are hitting men, but not many men are living in fear of women hitting them mm. but there are there are some seriously violent women who do assault their partners, and shine has on their books a few cases. Every in a year there will be several cases that come through Shine where the woman is as violent as the man and they'll know and the police will know that they might get called out this week and it's her who's beating him up and they'll go in another couple of weeks and it's him beating her and they seem to be about as violent as each other and quite often they're both really drinking a lot. That's not always the case because I'm not saying alcohol is causing violence it's it's not but there are certainly cases where one party is as dangerous as the other but they're really in the majority minority most cases men are more violent than women and women are in fear of men but there's also lesbians beating up lesbians there's gay men beating up gay men there's Adult sons beating up their elderly mothers. There's adult sons and adult daughters beating up their fathers. There's all sorts of combinations that don't fit that stereotype of the man beating up his woman partner. So the numbers are smaller, but when you're talking generally about family violence, there'll be all sorts of combinations. And when there's arranged marriages, as there are quite a few arranged marriages in New Zealand, it can get more complex. There can be a mother-in-law beating up her daughter-in-law on behalf of her son and things like that, that are complex and need to be intervened carefully so that it's best to have cultural knowledge to understand what the dynamic is before you start making assumptions. Also, that's different again to gang-related uh, violence, where you could put the guy who's beaten up his girlfriend in jail, and his gang bros will come around and do more violence on behalf of him. So it's it gets really complicated. But but I think that to just see it as men beating up women is is really simplistic. It, there's much more than that going on. And You're then a complicated
0: society and it's a complicated issue.
1: Oh, my gosh, yes. So a good advocate doesn't take anything for granted. They ask mm. lots of questions and they're trying to figure out who's in fear of who, whose world is becoming smaller, and who's dominating who, who has a big sense of entitlement?
0: Well, you gave me a and- good uh, that good example about the controlling issue. That that kind of made it real for me that it, this is a control thing. So yes. I want to control my environment and I want to control what goes on. Therefore, I control my partner or my kids or my mother-in-law or whichever yes. one it was. And I'm going to use anger or violence. That's my only tool to keep control. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um some of the other myths that this is uh, a poverty issue, this only happens in poor families?
1: Well, I think it happens a lot in poor families, partly because it's more visible, because um, when you haven't got much, you can't hide it easy. So it makes you more vulnerable to the criminal justice system scooping you up and putting you in jail, because the criminal justice system, it... it. um, it monitors the poorest communities most ruthlessly. So, if you live in a leafy suburb of of a city where there's not a whole lot of police cars roaming around, then the violence will be more hidden. There's still there's still abuse going on in those in those um, bigger houses, and the the abuse may be more subtle in that it will be more financial, and also that sometimes the victims have got more resources to, to get away. They may have another house. They may be able to go on a, a vacation overseas. They may have They may be able to get a family court lawyer to get a protection order. There's more resources to hide the abuse when you go upmarket. So quite often there's still abuse, but but it's much harder to see it. So our advocates still work with some wealthy uh, clients, but generally there are more people who are poor who come to our agency because they've just got so much fewer choices of where to go. And so it's always going to seem like poor people who are doing this to each other.
0: Yes. Yeah, yeah, I understand. And it's, but it's still, well, you, you, there's lots of cases of sports people or something, you know, being caught out for violence against other people yes. or, or their partners that, you know, money's not an issue. Or, um, there was the, the radio guy a few years ago that kicked his wife down the stairs. So I guess it's, yes. it does still happen, but you're saying those people can maybe hide it better or, um, like you said. Pe- poorer families don't have anywhere else to go it's more visible
1: and sometimes people never really own up to it and can rehabilitate their careers and go on and people seem to not mind so <laughs> yeah. it's just amazing to me but you know that's 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 how entrenched these things are
0: um the next myth is that this is only uh, this is a cultural issue this is only um, pacific island families that deal with this kind of thing.
1: Well, yes, you can say that, but then that's, that's as if white people don't have a culture. And yet I've just spent a whole bunch of time, uh, because I think a lot of people believe that, but I've spent a lot of time talking about culture so far, and that culture is New Zealand culture, which mm. is male socialization about what it means to be a man. That's culture. That's New Zealand culture. And it's built into New Zealand culture. It's built into how we're raised to be a man. Right from the first time um, your mother puts on your first pale blue onesie suit um, that tells the world that she's got a baby boy, you know, as opposed to if she put a pink suit on that baby, we'd all know it's a baby girl unless you want to make it gay. You know what I'm saying? Because. These are all cultural. These are cultural things. Like to to put a boy baby in a pink suit would be um, to some people totally uh, unacceptable. But that's a cultural notion that you couldn't put uh, a baby boy in a in a pink um, outfit because culturally that would be unacceptable. So I just don't accept that. I think we tend to view. Cultures that are not our own as being weird or unacceptable, and that's because we don't know them. Um, the more we get to know other cultures, we'll, when we see the depth of um, strengths and weaknesses in all cultures, then we get a better understanding. I mean, that's what I found anyway. I have a better understanding of culture when I get to know other cultures better.
0: It's very simple just to put everyone into a cultural box and That's their problem. Forget about it.
1: Yes, and and it's true that some cultures have, on the surface of it, harsher roles for men and women. But you know, you don't have to look very far back into history for those roles to be in in white New Zealand culture as well. So I mean, we're not we're not far from that.
0: The last myth, and you already touched on it, but uh, just to speak to it again, that you know that, that the movie Once for Warriors comes to mind with, when <laughs> yes. it comes to, I suppose you hear that a lot in your work, but alcohol and drugs, the, the violence is only committed when someone's pissed or on drugs.
1: Well, I think that's true for some people and not true for others, because some lots of people get really drunk and are never violent and other people get really drunk and are really scary and their violence is much worse. So the one thing I've learned um, from, and I've worked with some people who really know about this because they they teach it, at and I'm thinking of Larry Bennett from the University of Chicago who I did a bit of work with when I worked in Minnesota. And what, what he taught me was that, the correlation between alcohol and drugs and domestic violence is so individual that we have to be really careful to, to not make assumptions about how it's going to work out for people because some people can, can um, use drugs and not get violent and some people can use drugs and get seriously more violent and everything in between. So it really varies a lot from individual to individual. But there are some general things that you can say, which is, it seems that for quite a few people, if they, if they, if they drink and use um, violence, that the violence they use when they're drinking uh, may be more serious, is likely to be more serious, than the violence they use if they're, if they're not drinking. But if that same person gives up drinking, it doesn't mean they'll give up um, using violence. Um, so giving up drinking is not going to fix the violence. Um, in similar ways, giving up the violence isn't going to uh, fix the drinking. So they, they kind of sit side by side and they both need to be Dealt with
0: concurrently. Yeah, good, good catch. Thanks for clearing those up. And I think it just brings a little bit more awareness to the whole thing, so we don't just end up putting it, the whole thing in a box. This is men and women that the, yeah. the guy's drunk and comes home, and that's not me, and I don't know anyone like that, so this is not my problem. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. You
0: have a a program called DV Free uh, to do with domestic violence uh, around the workplace. Do you want to talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's what uh, I care quite a bit about that because what I love about it is it's an opportunity for employers to really step up and do some simple things that make such a difference for their employees because it gives a message to say we care about our workers, we we care about health and safety, and really what it means is that if you've got an employee who's either – a victim of domestic violence, in other words, for example, I'm thinking of a case that I know about just recently worked in a bank um, and this was a woman who broke up with her husband and he was he was um, really wanting her to come back to him, and what he was doing was freaking her out by stalking her at work, so he would come around the parking lot of where she parked at work and leaving messages on her car and he was also calling her at work this was really upsetting her but it was also freaking out the um, people she worked with and for the bank they were um, they were really wanting to um, stop the upset of what was happening to her, but also that whole team. She worked within a small team of about five people. They loved this woman. She was such a great worker, and they wanted to make sure she was going to be okay, but they were freaking out, thinking, what can we do, what can we do? Now, the manager knew what to do, and so what they did was they shifted where the person was working. They shifted where her car was. They were a large enough branch that they had good security, and they walked her to the car each day. They they managed to they got a trespass order. They did everything they could do. They varied her hours for coming to work. You know, they really sat down with her and said, Now let's think, how can we make your workplace totally safe for you? What they could have done if they were ignorant like some employers do they could have said you know if this doesn't stop we're going to have to let you go because it's disturbing all our other employees you know which is what some employers do and they do that just through they do that through not knowing what to do it's just because they don't know what to do and it feels like well her home life is is uh, interrupting her work life and she loved her job she loved her colleagues she that job was everything and right then she needed that job like no other time because they were breaking up she was paying off her mortgage that was the most important time of her life to keep that job and if that bank had fired her you know her whole life could really have gone up in smoke because and it would have been just because the bank didn't know what to do so it was a credit to that bank that also just at that time got some policy together and stuff. And and they figured out how to make that workplace a safe place for that worker. They also gave her some time off to get protection order in place and do a few other things with the kids so that they, she had two kids so that they could um, shift schools and just just get things sorted. And for the amount of, work they had to do to make things right for her was so much cheaper, easier, and felt better for everyone and gave the right message to all their colleagues was so much better than letting her go and having to retrain a whole new staff member, which probably cost them, I think, the estimate is about $20,000 to bring someone else up to speed for that job. That would have been not only bad for morale, but also bad for the balance sheet compared to these things they did um, to help her. And I think that's really to their credit that they stepped up like that. And it just gave such a good message to all the other colleagues that they were prepared to do that. And then with that unified uh, position that the bank gave, that, that um, that guy who was harassing her he stayed away he could see that the bank he wasn't gonna mess with the bank he certainly wasn't gonna mess with the security guy and and it totally helped that woman get her life in order I mean she needed an advocate as well so they made a referral to the um, to shine and and it was just like the best thing now that's exactly what DV free is about it's getting, It's getting the workplace organized, helping the bank figure out what to do there, but also not making the bank feel like they have to fix the domestic violence. By getting a domestic violence advocate in there to help with um, with that employee, the bank doesn't have to fix the DV. That's not their job. They just have to get a referral to a DV specialist agency, what they have to do is just get some of those policy things in place so that they can make the workplace safe for that employee. And do I, just, bit I in love environment. That. Mm. Yeah. It's not that complicated. I mean, the, there's some tricky parts to it, and they're not that tricky, but the, the, when I say tricky, there's some skills involved in having that initial discussion with her I understand that things are difficult for you at home. We'd like to help you be safe here at work. Would you be prepared to talk with me about that? So there's that discussion. We know someone who can help you with this. You know, so I'm not saying the exact right things. I'm just giving you the very short version. Mm. Now, someone in the bank needs to be able to have that discussion, and that discussion needs to be carefully – it's a sensitive discussion. It needs to be carefully paced with her so that she's not feeling that everyone's going to know her business because even though her immediate colleagues knew, she didn't want the whole bank staff – they were a reasonable size bank. She didn't want the whole bank staff knowing what was going on, nor did she want it in her HR file. So – the bank needed to manage that discreetly so part of what we do is help help places like that bank manage this in a discreet careful sensitive way internally and then we pick up the stuff that's external to what the bank has to doesn't have to deal with that's our business but we help the employer deal with their business with policy training and support. See, that's what it is, and I think that's just good, good employer, um, good employer management um, to have something like that in place.
0: And I see you've got uh, all the information on the website there. So the Shine website is two, the number two, shine.org.nz. Yeah. And I see there's a menu link for DV free if people want to reach out to you or get more information on that, and just anything to do with domestic violence. I think education is our friend. In this area And the more you can learn about it and the more you can understand it And that it is a complicated issue uh, The more you can learn and understand Will really help shift that culture in New Zealand And so you can go to the website Nz. You, if you're uh, a victim of domestic violence There's information there And a phone number that you can reach out If you want to uh, If you're a man that feels like You uh, have Issues to do with violence that are unresolved You can also reach out to Shine And they run in Auckland uh, Men's uh, Courses every week I think, or at least uh, every week At their headquarters there And of course you can donate as well So Graham's kindly donated his time To come and talk to me today And so um, I thank him for that But if you feel like donating And you want to give to this cause I know Shine's the best in the business When it comes to combating domestic violence So um, you can donate through the website as well. Anything else you'd like to add on this, Graham?
1: Um, the other thing I'd say is that um, just just to think about the DV free for a little bit, just one more moment is that we have an e-learning module on the website that employers can use as well, and it's worth having a look at. I mean, I think it works best if they if employers um, work with us to tailor it to their own specific um, to their own specific corporate need but you'll see that um, Westpac bank have worked with us to create an e-learning module about domestic violence in the workplace and people can look at that um, e-learning module there I think that's quite a good that's quite a good thing to look at
0: Beautiful. All right. That's great. Thank you for that. And the, the final question that I ask every man and that uh, it's your opportunity to model some vulnerability <laughs> is uh, about your dark side. Do you have a dark side and how have you dealt with it and how do you embrace
1: it? Yes, I do. And I'm glad you asked that because it's directly about what I've been talking about most of the time, which is about power, because it's been such a, a theme is injustice and wanting people with less power to get uh, support and freedom, and yet um, I think um, I'm quite competitive. I quite I like power. I don't think power is bad. I think power is good. Well, I actually think it's neutral. I think. And because of all that, I know in myself that I, I have within me uh, an appetite for power, and so I have to watch that, that I'm really quite competitive and that I have to constantly be mindful of myself that I don't let that dominate Situations that I'm in about the very things that I care about, the very things like um, social justice and all these, some of these topics that we've talked about, I've still got this sense of entitlement. I've still got this background of privilege compared to many other people that I'm used to. I'm used to being treated well. I'm used to um having things the way I like to have them. And so because of that, I have to constantly monitor that in myself. And it's very humbling when I mess it up. And I'm I'm scared of being called on that. And so the dark side in me is those humbling times when I realize, damn, the very things I'm teaching about, the very things I'm working on for my whole working life, I still most need to learn. And that's kind of why I'm doing it, because I think I have that same propensity in me that I still had when I was a kid. And it shocks me that I still have to struggle with that on a daily basis, and I just—I guess I've just got to keep dealing with that because it's constantly something that I struggle with. Perfect. Trying to trying to deal with it all. The time.
0: Yeah, is it? Would you say it's kind of an ego thing? Is it?
1: I think it is an ego thing, and I think um, I'm grateful when I'm grateful when I don't do it. But the thing is that there's a good side to it because when you when you're spontaneous, you know, it's like if you're training when you're presenting, you're putting yourself out there. That's ego. You need that to present, and because I'm a trainer so you have to put yourself out there that's being forward but then in the very act of doing that you make yourself vulnerable and you run the risk of tripping yourself up like a big 6 foot 4 13 year old <laughs> um, <laughs> and it's it's so humiliating to have to keep relearning some of the same things that you think You've learned, and I've had to do that over and over again sometimes, and it's it's frustrating to me and I'm just so grateful to my friends and family who are are pretty forgiving because you know if they're around me they, they seem to have to be
0: yeah thank you for modeling that and yeah again as always I say to every man I just appreciate you being open and vulnerable because it's so valuable for the guys listening just to um, you know a lot of people will relate to what you're saying so I appreciate you opening up and saying that stuff Mm -hmm. Graham it's been wonderful to talk to you I've enjoyed this conversation so much and this is something I'm so passionate I've been supporting Shine for a few years now because it's uh it's a not very nice part of New Zealand culture that has made a lot of media recently, but, um, still is not talked about that much. So I love that uh, I've had an opportunity to ask some questions and hear from the expert in this area. So thank you so much for coming on.
1: Thank you. And shine really appreciates your support. Thank you so much for that. No, thanks. Thanks.
0: Appreciate it. Thank you. Okay the uh, folks, my conversation with the lovely Graham Barnes. I hope you enjoyed the uh, discussion with Graham. Uh, it's a very touchy subjects we touched on there and I hope you uh, got something out of it and feel a little bit more educated about those things that we talked about. If you want to support Shine or learn more about the workplace program that Graham was talking about, you can go to Shine's website, the number 2shine.org.nz, 2shine.org.nz and you can learn all about that I would appreciate if you could go onto iTunes to give this a rating and a review The show Uh, we need a few more of those it would be appreciated keep sharing it around on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook wherever you see the show mentioned give it a like, give it a share, make a comment and I will love you forever and I'll be back next week for episode number 19 of the Nathan Seawood Show
1: that was the Nathan Seawood Show personal conversations with powerful men.